2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are continuing our study in Jeremiah. This is a corollary passage with our study today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 through verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through 22. God's word declares, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. As also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Well, this morning we are going to take up again Jeremiah chapter 29. I know two weeks ago we had an overview of the chapter. Last week we focused in on one particular portion of it. There is one more portion still that I want to really focus in on more specifically and directly. Uh, Last week we talked about the uh, expectation of God that we fulfill one of our primary purposes and that may sound strange, or the uh, one primary element to our purpose, and that is to bear sons and daughters and give our sons and daughters in marriage that they might have sons and daughters. And we talked about the pro-lifeness of God, that from the garden before sin, we are told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that directive, I cannot find anywhere in God's word, has been removed, and so any Uh, activity or teaching or principle that would seek to move against that, we stand against, for it is not in accordance with God's word. And uh, in the midst of that, there was one key element of understanding that I want to begin with again today to get into our text that we have before us. And that element is that there are certain aspects that God reserves for himself of life on this earth even after sin. And among those, and I've taught previously that he has reserved for himself that he will establish kings and kingdoms. And we spent a lot of time on that, and I probably will before um, we're in the air, um, unless it happens real soon. Um, But the other one that I find God reserving for himself is the authorship and the determination of who opens and closes the womb. That it is his job and not man's, and whenever we take that upon ourselves, we are acting in rebellion against God and saying that I don't trust you to open and close the womb according to your principles, according to your wisdom, according to your timetable, um, and so I'm going to take that in initiative on myself. And our world has done that, and it is purely rebellion against God. In its pure state, it is simple rebellion to say I will decide when and how Uh, and how many children to conceive within a marriage. And so when we find the remnant of Israel in Babylon, uh, this is not just a necessity because of all of the loss of life by uh, the pestilence, the sword, the famine, um, but is also part of their glorifying God 
and being content wherever he places them is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, even if for their lifetime that means doing it in Babylon instead of in Israel. To fill the city of Babylon instead of the city of Jerusalem. That wherever God has placed us, that we still have these directives placed upon us. Uh, And yes, among them is to subdue the earth, and we still have that, and we can investigate that sometime, and and certainly will. Um, But now we want to press on into another facet of his sovereignty. That is, what is it that God says he will control? How much has he planned, and what is he reserved for himself? And when we say these things, um, we do not imply that he is forcefully doing this, nor that he is somehow just throwing up, well, this must be God's will because it happened. That simply is not the case. When men work in rebellion against the sovereignty of God, where God says, I will set up kings and kingdoms, I will open and close the womb uh, upon my directive, and we rebel against that, it is not that we can just say that, well, it happened, therefore it must be God's will because God is sovereign. When we use the term sovereignty, that's how some people use the term sovereignty, but when I use the term sovereignty, when our church leadership uses that, we are saying this is God's will, this is God's Plan. This is his, his uh, desire, and he has, though, he has placed, however, um, that sovereignty um, in a form of suspension that is dependent to some degree upon the authority that he placed upon man when he gave man his image. And that means that we can rebel against the plan of God. And in fact, men do it all the time. It was not God's plan that Adam and Eve be thrown out of the garden and have to till weeds with the sweat of their brow, till weeds, (laughs) till the ground to produce weeds uh, with the sweat of their brow. That was not God's plan. That was man's rebellion against the plan of God. We're going to start investigating the plan of God and recognize, hopefully, the difference between just throwing up our arms and saying, well, whatever happens, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, Um, and God just made that happen, and so we just have to accept it when we need to actually be looking at things and saying, well, that's the rebellion of man against the plan of God. And once we begin to recognize those, it'll be, it's phenomenal to see how much of our philosophy of life, how much of what we call culture is uh, antithetical to the sovereignty of God. What is God's plan? That we are working diligently against it. One other area that I have spoken of before that we find that men work diligently against the sovereignty of God and, uh, and we're all involved in this. I, I, I just naturally do it and I found myself doing it this weekend in the work both here and up at the property and in the mountains and and uh, we all try to get jobs done with as little work as possible. Don't we? I mean, that's what, whatever you think about technology, up until the last 20 years when technology became entertainment, um, the purpose of technology really was to help us get more productivity, more work done with less energy, at least by human energy. Um, and that's really what the drive of technology was. Um, yes, there were entertainment aspects to it along the way, talking pictures, things like that. But the drive of technology was to say, we don't want the curse. The curse says that you're going to, by the sweat of your brow, that you're going to have to work and earn a living, and we don't like that. And so we have been moving against that and trying to solve the curse by our own energies and applying ourselves to that. And again, rather than receiving that from the Lord and recognizing the difference between the subduing of the earth and the necessity of work. And so now we work in environments where we don't move and then we go out of the money we earn there. We go and pay a gym membership so that, because we recognize that our bodies need to move and that they are benefit from that. Um, when we could have taken care of both things at once in some positions. And so as I sat upon my tractor and moved dirt instead of hauling it, 
Um, and I recognize that I need to now go exercise because sitting on my tractor is not really exercise. We begin to realize that our bodies were designed to work. And yet the heart of man is a rebellious heart that says, I don't want to work hard. I don't want to sweat. I don't want to do that except on my terms. And so I'll sweat to be in good physical condition so I can look at myself in the mirror and go, wow. Um, but I won't sweat to accomplish something. That's not good sweat. Good sweat is when you go out there and work out to build one particular muscle group or two. And so we have this characteristic of our society, and when we come to a passage like Jeremiah 29, we need to understand our engagement with the sovereignty of God. Yes, God has a plan. Does he have complete control? Yes. Has he surrendered some of that control? Yes. He has humbly uh, given that to man and allowed us to have a significant measure of control in our own lives. And thus, we come to God's word with these directives saying, here's how I want you to live. Here is how you're going to have to live because of your sin. Here is the, the consequences of the curse that comes from that, and you're going to have to deal with it. And we find ourselves ramming up against that instead of embracing it. And we find that in family planning issues, and we find that in our moral issues, we find that on a national level, uh, we, we find it on a very intimate level um, that we are constantly at odds with recognizing, well, how does God want it done? What is his plan for my life? Rather than what is my plan, with no interest in what God's plan for my life is. And this, we come to this letter written to those who are in exile who want to hear certain people say certain things that coincide with what they want rather than what God wants. And so today we are going to again address a portion of this chapter that men have abused to make it say what they want instead of acknowledging what God wants. Even though God declares that this is what his plan, this is what he wants in the very verse. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word of truth. And we pray that we might uh, allow it to speak on its, for itself. That we might not insert into it our ideas, but derive our ideas from it. That we might allow it to impact our philosophy and our approach to life in a radical fashion that frankly, we're probably not really prepared for, that you understand that we don't. But Lord, help us by your Spirit to delve deeply here, to taste of the goodness of trusting in you, even when it seems foolish by our standards. Or give us your grace and mercy this hour to challenge our faith by your word and your spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So the portion before us this morning that I want to really delve into, I'm going to begin by reading just the verse that everyone likes to read. And that is verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will find this, I'm sure you will find some nice little pictures, beautiful sunset or mountain scenery or water element or something on the internet. I'm sure you'll find this and can share it on your Facebook site, on your Snapchat or something with this verse very nicely typed in there, and you go, ah, oh, God has a plan for me, and it's good and not evil, and, and uh, it's hope, and it's a future. That's what he wants to give me. And as if somehow just the declaration and affirmation of that settles the matter. But it doesn't. 
what God has declared is his thoughts and his plan. And these are distinct from what his required actions are. That is, that they are dependent upon an element outside of himself. God's thoughts and God's plans for us are always for our benefit. We have other passages in the New Testament as well. We've read a portion of that here this morning already. Uh, we have passages that say that you know, all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Another one we like to link to something like this. And we go through the promises of God and we are, we are captivated by these and we hold them up as if God now is, has his arm twisted behind him and he can't help but just say, Uncle, and give us all his goodness. And by that we mean what we call goodness, not what he calls goodness. That is health, wealth, popularity. That's what we think goodness is. And we consistently come to the promised passages of Scripture and we hold them up and say, and, we, and, and this is born out of many, many years. When I was a young child, a young man, um, this is when the health, wealth, gospel really took effect. It's nothing new. It's been around for a long time, but it really became prevalent in, a, a, in American circles especially. Um, the name it, claim it. If you name a promise, claim it, God has to give it to you. He just has to. And they would quote passages just like this verse. And say, you see, God is just, just wanting to dump his promises on you and just bless you and bless you and bless you. And by that, we mean that he's going to bless me selfishly and give me everything my heart desires, even if my heart doesn't desire after him. And we have failed to recognize that this verse is in the midst of a bunch of verses. And those bunch of verses around it matter much more than your thoughts and feelings about this isolated verse that you can now conjure up and, and turn and twist to make God the bad guy if you have any problems. I thought you had good plan for me. I thought you had good thoughts. I thought you had a hope for me. What happened? And now it's God's fault. The context is very valuable to understanding this and it has been largely lost in our society that simply wants to hear what they want to hear. First of all, can God do good? Sometimes. And good, not in terms of ultimate good, he will always do good. But I mean from our perspective, will he treat me well and the way I think I should be treated? Sometimes. But again, it is not dependent upon his sovereignty. It is not dependent upon his thoughts. It is not dependent upon his plan. His plan from Adam and Eve were that they would be fruitful, multiply, and be in the garden, and, and, and that he would have evening walks with all of us. He's capable of doing that. We disrupted God's plan. God's plan was for Israel to come into the land and, and enjoy it. And, and I mean, look at the terminology within the context of his promises. He uses words like forever, eternally, everlastingly, generations upon generations. These are the terms God used. They communicate something to us that he had a plan for Israel that was to go on and on and on and on. Why didn't that plan work? was not because God failed. It was because Israel failed. The plan for the garden didn't fail because God failed. It because Adam and Eve failed. And the plan that God has in his sovereignty for his people throughout all the ages, the only reason it has ever failed is because we have failed to recognize that these kinds of verses are, are tucked into a portion of Scripture that has directives for us. They have qualifiers. We don't like to hear that. They have conditions. 
Verse 12 begins, then. And when you see a then, the first thing you should start looking at is saying, well, where's the if? Because this is not just a terminology of time, but also of condition. The if, then. If you meet this, then this will happen. Both positively and negatively, you find those in Scripture. Here is a very positive declaration by God. The day will come that you'll seek him, and you'll seek him with, but look again, you'll seek him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You'll seek him singularly. You will not seek him amidst the other things, just as one other thing to put on the shelf there, but that you will do it entirely. And then, when you do that, I will listen. You'll seek me, you'll find me, you'll search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Do you see the condition? The condition was, when you seek me with all your heart, then you'll find me. And at that juncture, at that point, my plan can be implemented. My thoughts can be brought forward as action. I can do for you what I want to do for you. What does God want to do for men? The Old New Testament says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all men to come to repentance. That's his plan. That's his wanter. That's his thoughts. And he knows his thoughts. And it is for everyone's benefit. Correct? We, we know that. That's what God wants. And he lays out all the necessary elements to enable you. So it is not the lack of ability of man. It is not that they are incapable of finding God. It is not that they don't ever have a wanter of their own that will correlate with God's wanting. Um, but rather they have a choice and they choose to rebel against that. God, remember just a few chapters back, chapter 26, when God says, I'm going to send you to them and maybe they'll all listen. <laughs> This is God's plan, is that all men listen. That's his thoughts, and those are good thoughts, and that's a good plan. What can he implement? As much of it as we allow. Does God cause all men everywhere to repent? No. Does he call them to repent? Yes. Big difference. And so God has this wonderful plan, and he provided for that plan all the necessary elements And that passage in 2 Corinthians 1, that in Jesus Christ all the promises of God are yes, that is our amen, it's finished. That in Jesus Christ there is the fullest provision by God to entirely implement his whole plan of good for us. Amen? Isn't that great? That's good news, folks. He has paid the price he has done all that God could do, must do, for his plan to be implemented for our benefit. His thoughts of good are blossomed out in full bloom and production in the person Jesus Christ. All the promises of God, Paul says, are yes in Jesus Christ. That is, they are fully ready to be implemented there is nothing left on God's side of the provision table. He has raised the critter. He has slaughtered the critter. He has roasted the critter. He has put the critter on your plate in a well-garnished, in mouth-watering small portions but he will not stuff it down your throat. He's done everything else. All you need to do is say, I'll take that. And that's not name it, claim it, because when we recognize I take that, I'm going to be engaged in something. And he's going to talk about what they need to be engaged in. First of all, we find out that it's going to be 70 years. Seventy years before his plan could be implemented in their lives. 
70 years. I'm 54. Not even at 70 yet. Most of you know I'm a pretty impatient person. I've never waited 70 years for anything because I'm not 70 years old. I don't even like waiting seven seconds for the computer to come up, frankly. And most of you don't either, or else they'd stop making them faster and faster and faster and faster. We have been trained in impatience. Put the same screen on your TV and hit pause and see how long you can look at it. I doubt you can look 30 seconds at it without becoming totally bored because they change the picture every two to three seconds or less in your favorite show. Count them. We've been trained in impatience. God says 70 years you're going to be there. And one of the first elements of recognizing the goodness of God is to recognize the timing of God. That I will wait on the Lord. There is a famous passage, right? Those that wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up like, on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. And we love all those terminologies. They're fascinating. I want to be like, you go on a run. I want, to, I want to be strong. And then we go, wait a minute. Let's go back to the first three words. Wait on the four words. Wait on the Lord. What if it's 70 years? What if you're 90 years old and there's no baby yet, and yet the promise was that out of you would come nations? Abram, wait on the Lord. 70 years. You'll get back there, but not anytime soon. Wait on the Lord. That is, you're waiting for him to do what we often foolishly take upon ourselves to do in our time frame. We saw that last week when we talk about our procreativity we're going to take it upon ourselves to do it outside of the framework that God has put there. Because we don't want to wait on the Lord. We don't want him to do it in his timing, um, to his purposes. We don't trust him. Let's be honest. We don't trust God with our time, with our lives. So he says, you're going to wait 70 years, and uh, in that time, you're going to be doing these things. We've talked about them before. And uh, then he says, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. God is capable of doing this, but he has a plan. And I don't think any of those young people that were drug off from Jerusalem to Babylon had an idea that hearing someone say, it's going to be 70 years before we head back, thought, well, that's just great. No, I don't think so. You're like, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to be 85 before I get to go back? I don't think I'm going to live that long. Wait on the Lord. This is where it begins that we are going to seek out all the things we talked about here earlier in the first nine verses, eight verses, that we are going to seek the peace of where God places us, that we are going to have contentment. And once again, is our society developing contentment in you or destroying it? The entire purpose of every marketing strategy I've ever been exposed to is to build a want in you that didn't need to be there, to make you discontent. You need this. My exposure to the media right now is pretty limited to the radio in my truck. And, um, boy, apparently Americans do not want they want weird things from what but they're trying to 
get you to lose weight and just not believe that you're overweight, just believe you're just bloated, to all the way to you definitely need to have this certain vehicle because that's the only way you know you've arrived. They have create discontentment. And God says, be content where I place you. In what condition there? Serve me there faithfully. I have a plan. And as we go through the scriptures, we find over and over and over again that the promises of God have with them an expectation of you. They are there waiting, but you must come on God's terms. There have been occasions that we have set a very nice table of food, going back to an earlier illustration, and uh, we've had people come and just plop down and think they could just do whatever they want at the table, and they were dismissed. They didn't get to eat any of the good. Oh, we prepared it with our heart fully in it, that it was going to be good food, it's going to be delicious, it's going to be available, it's going to be ready, all that. We had good thoughts and good plan, but because of a child coming in, usually it's a child, sometimes it's a young adult, and sometimes it's an older person, um, coming in and thinking they have a right to it all and that they can just and not be civilized, they lose it. There is still a condition. And so it is in this table that God has set for us in our son Jesus Christ, there is a condition that we come to it on his terms and we recognize that he is the provider and I am the recipient and I have to come to him on that term of realizing I am undeserving, this is his grace, this is his mercy, I cannot simply stand here in my current condition and claim it because he has prepared it. And yes, I think sometimes um, there are times I would rather throw food away than put it down some people's face. And I got to believe that's how God feels sometimes too. When we come to him with that attitude that you're going to take me as I am, you've got to bless me because you said so in this verse, and I'm not going to change anything. If you don't, I'm going to accuse you of failing me. And I'm going to profane your name to everybody I know because God let me down. Well, no wonder he threw the food out. No wonder he took his thoughts and his plans for you and put them in the trash. He's done that for a whole generation almost of Israel because they didn't meet the conditions of wanting to follow after him with all their heart. The other facet that we see here, again, is that God is available. God is not far off. And so if God is far from you, it isn't because he moved. It's because you did. It isn't because he is inattentive. It's because you are. It isn't because he is non-communicative. It is probably because you are. It isn't because he is unfaithful. It's because you are. God said, I'm ready to hear. It's going to be, I'm, I, he is listening, by the way. But he says, I know my plan. My plan is 70 years from now. It's not really a time frame you love, but in fact, that's why the false prophets were rising up to tell him, you don't have to wait for God. Let's do it now. Sound familiar? And here comes the plan of God waiting for their faithful obedience and God says I was never far from you but your heart was far from me and as soon as this test is over as soon as this opportunity for you to respond to my plans and my thoughts then finally you will call upon me and you'll go and pray to me, and I will listen. Again, this is not indiscriminate prayer. This is the prayer of a people who for 70 years have obeyed God. Then they go to God and pray for Jerusalem. Guys like Zerubbabel, guys like Nehemiah and Ezra, 
they start praying. We have those prayers recorded for us in our Bible that towards the end of the seven years, they're like, Lord, Jerusalem, for Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt and, and he's like, the walls are broken down and so Lord's, I'm listening. Go talk to the king and your desires will be taken care of. I'm not sure we know how old Nehemiah was, if he was one of the sons or grandsons born in captivity or if he was an elderly man. Doesn't seem like he was elderly by the energy he put into the project. But I don't know, Caleb was 80, and he was ready to take on the biggest mountain with the biggest enemies, so who knows what God's capable of. After 70 years of obedience, you come to me, I'll listen. You obey, I'll listen. After 70 years of obedience, they come to him, whatever they ask him, God gives them. It's incredible. Do you see? I mean, these guys just load them up. Cyrus, they just load them up and say, here's all your stuff. Here's money. Here's here's an escort. Here's an army. Here's, Here's whatever you need. Whatever they ask God for, there it is. But that expectation of that kind of answer prayer didn't just pop up out of nowhere. It was the results of 70 years of obeying God. And we think that somehow, well, I obeyed God uh, for the last 20 minutes, so now can I ask for? It's like your two-year-olds. That's how my two-year-old thinks. I don't have any more two-year-olds, but when I had them. That's how your two-year-old, who's got a two-year-old here? My nursery people. No, they're three, aren't they, now? Oh, man, they get so old. What do they think? They think that if they obey for 10 minutes, that they can now come in, now can I have a candy? And that's how we are to God. Well, if I obeyed him for a week, nothing's gone my way. Well, grow up. Be mature. Faithfulness is measured across time. Lifetimes. That's how we measure faithfulness. Don't think, well, I, was, I, I tried to walk with the Lord for a week and nothing really happened. I didn't see him answer. I, I, then I prayed my prayer list. Nothing happened. A week? 40 days? Wasn't that the big deal? 40 days to this and 40 days to that? 40 days? 70 years of obedience. And then prayers were answered like that. When we begin to conform our lives to the sovereignty of God, our understanding of time changes. We begin to recognize that, yes, 40 years Israel's in the wilderness. Moses is 80 years old before he's ready for work. So I'm going to pick on John Roberts since he's the only ancient one here. You're probably just getting ready for your most important assignment. But we don't think in those terms. But in the sovereignty of God, we can recognize that he has a plan. And if I want to be a part of that plan, I'm going to be faithful in his service. And if that means that I'm going to minister and minister and minister with with no, from a human perspective, no effect, I'm not going to just stop because, well, it's just nothing's happening. Something's happening. You're being faithful. (laughs) That is something in the economy of God, that is something special. The indication is it's a rarity. And when Paul says, listen, this is how we minister, and, and whether we, we are well-received or not well-received, we're going to keep doing it. 
Because the results is the one driving us, what's driving us is the promises of God and Jesus Christ. He's provided all of this. And so we must minister the gospel with all of our energies and, and in righteousness and with truth and with an expectation that God's sovereign plan in our lives we are surrendered to. We sang a song that says perfect submission in two verses. Perfect submission. And frankly, I don't know that yet. If any of you have gotten there, let me know. I'd like to spend more time with you. I haven't gotten to perfect submission. But boy, I can recognize rebellion in my life. And I want it gone in every department of my life, every facet, I want it gone, that I might perfectly submit to God. And if that means that I'm going to stay faithful, even when it seems like everything is collapsing around me, uh, then I'm going to do it. And I'm going to invest myself there that I can be engaged in the good thoughts and the hope and the life that God has in store for me. That's what I want. And it demands of us evil. I want the future God has. And by that future, I don't mean 10 minutes from now. I don't mean a month from now. I don't mean a year from now. My future is not wrapped up in my children, my grandchildren. It is wrapped up in my Jesus. That's the future that I'm striving for. And it goes well beyond my lifespan. And the idea that somehow... Well, I named it and claimed it, nothing happened, so I, uh, that doesn't work. It's foolishness, because you don't understand the workings of God and the plan of God, which means you were never in perfect submission. You weren't even in imperfect submission. <laughs> you were in pure, selfish rebellion. That's all it was. You're trying to manipulate God into blessing you in your terms. And God says, I have a plan. I have thoughts for you that are really good. But can you sustain yourself in obedience and wait on me? And one day, and maybe you'll be a frail old man, one day I'll renew your strength. You will mount up on eagle's wings. You will run and not grow weary. And it will be not to your glory at all because you know it is only built upon the mercy and grace of God that he has done it for you. What a powerful declaration by God to a people in complete confusion. All these people saying, live for the day, live for the day, tomorrow, who knows, live for the day, live for yourself. Don't even try to fit in and, and, and don't even get comfortable. Live in rebellion. We want it our way. Seventy years that had to be squelched. Then God was ready to implement his plan for them, to implement his thoughts. And it is no mistaking that throughout those 70 years, the only real records of what we have going on in Babylon, from both the Babylonian side and the Persian side, the Mede side, as well as from Scripture, are people taking a stand and willing to sacrifice themselves to stand for Christ, for God. Throw me in the furnace. Throw me in the lion's den. I'm not budging from my faithfulness. Oh, we had that determination to say 70 years from now. What happens 70 years from now will be impacted directly by how I live today until that day. And therefore, if I want God to listen to me then, I need to 
be this today so that God's good thoughts for me can be accomplished. They were dependent. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat from them, have children, give your children husbands and wives, have grandkids. Seek the peace of the city where I've placed you. Pray for it. Do all of that for 70 years and then get ready to stand back and wow, see what I can do. We can't wait seven days. We have an eternal home that puts Jerusalem to shame on this earth. And the instruction is, wait for it. But while you're waiting, you do it by obedience to God with an expectation of his power being displayed. There is one prayer that I want to close with. And we don't think of it as a prayer, but it is. It starts off, Lord, Lord. So it's prayer. And that prayer is at the end of your life. Jesus describes that prayer. He says, many will come to me in that day with this prayer, Lord, Lord, look what I've done for you. And his response to that prayer is, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, there is a prayer you want answered, and it's that last one. And it's dependent upon what's gone on 70 years before, or 30 or 20. In the case of some who give their lives to Christ and then lose it very soon, it could be ours. We come to him and we, our prayer is, Lord, it's all in your name. And I turn from my sin to receive your salvation. And I have walked as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is the premise by which God knows us our name's written in the book of life, and we are welcomed in. Can we keep that thought that there's something well beyond this life? There's something more than ease and comfort and entertainment and food that God has a plan for us, that he has thoughts to give us, that I can invest myself today with that as my objective, well beyond the horizon, beyond my experience, beyond yours, can we put our lives there, our expectations there, so that our lives today will be faithful. We dearly want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we get to heaven. but I don't know that we want to do all the work to get to that point. (laughs) And so when you're reading the promises of God in his word, be careful to look around in the scripture and see what's going on, what is the requirement. For the fact is that God has some wondrous promises and I don't want to diminish them at all in your mind. They are marvelous. But please recognize that while God has provided for those promises for all people through Jesus Christ, they are thoughts and plans until we agree in our lives, in our minds with him. Then he will act in his time. That's the principle of promises in Scripture. And so part of our responsibility to one another is to encourage. There's two words in Acts, they encouraged and edified. Encouragement is that whole idea of keep on. We have a hope. We have a future. We have the good thoughts of God awaiting us. Steady on. Press on. 
stand fast. All those words that you find in Scripture. Don't become disqualified because you start looking down at the ground in front of you instead of at the goal ahead of you. If you want your blessings here, then this look down. If you want your blessings there, you're going to have to look out. Look out. Look up. Look beyond and press to that mark. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your promises, and we rejoice in them. And we are amazed by them. But we are also sobered by our rebellion against your sovereign plan. And Lord, give us a sensitivity to it that we might wait upon you. Follow you faithfully. Be in your service. And Lord, we thank you that we do have a hope should we choose to participate in your plan. To join in your thoughts with perfect submission. Lord, we thank you for some conviction today. And help us not to just walk away from it, but to embrace it. That we might find ourselves more submitted to you each day. That contentment might reign. That complaint be distant. That we might stand on your promises and stand for them. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.